And I thought that I would still be a pediatrician when I gave this answer. And I wanted to be involved in teaching, in uh, undergraduate education and postgraduate, it would depend. And I wanted to be involved in research. And so he looked at me and he said, that's pathology. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Last week, we talked about pathology in the Netherlands, and today we're going to stay in Europe and look at pathology in Portugal. Dr. Fatima Canaro is a pathologist in Portugal, but she was actually born in and did some of her education in the country of Angola in Africa. We're going to hear about her experiences in Angola We'll also learn how she became one of the editors of the WHO Blue Book on Gastrointestinal Tumors, and then about her experiences with the European Society of Pathology. All right, here's Dr. Fatima Canaro. Who, who or what inspired you to go to medical school? Well, this is a very interesting question, and uh, there is also a very simple answer. Nobody inspired me, actually. It was a kind of a dream since childhood, I can even say so, or adolescent. Uh, the environment my, at my family is not uh, influenced by medical doctors. Mainly my parents were school teachers, so it was mainly devoted to education. So it was, you know, something you don't know how to explain, but was there from very early and at the time, we had to decide which course to follow at university. My parents insisted if I wanted to have uh, some help, uh, and I always denied because I was absolutely sure that was medicine that I would like to follow. So it was very easy. So then going into medical school, I know I, I read somewhere you said that you wanted to be a pediatrician. Now, where did that interest come from? Uh, um, that comes because I love children. So I thought that would be a good way to, to develop these, uh, these feelings, let me say. So during my course at university, I always thought that I would go to pediatrics until the day one professor at my university, at University of Port, because you may know that I began my university course in Angola, in Luanda, and that was determinant for my life. We can explore that afterwards. But when I finished the course here at University of Port, shortly afterwards, I was invited by the professor in cell biology to join his group and to become a monitor in cell biology. I was really, well, surprised because I was not expecting this invitation that was really very nice to receive. And uh, I thought a while and I said, I'm so sorry, but I cannot accept your invitation. He was surprised. Uh, in a way, it was a compliment to, 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 to invite someone uh, just uh, having finished the, the university course. And he asked me why. And it was very clear for me already by that time, and also because of the experience during the course, I wanted to have clinical activity, and I thought that I would still be a pediatrician when I gave this answer, and I wanted to be involved in teaching, in 
and the graduate education and postgraduate, it would depend. And I wanted to be involved in research. And so he looked at me and he said, that's pathology. I was really astonished looking at him. I never considered pathology because it was not the best experience during the course in the, when I moved from the University of Luanda to the University of Porto. And in this uh, tumultuous situation of civil war in Angola, so on and so forth, it was not the best experience. So I never considered to come to pathology. But with his advice, he volunteered, I can go with you, introduce you to the head of department. I said, no, I prefer to go by myself. Uh, Professor Daniel Schell was the head of department and his right-hand man was Professor Subrin Simões. So introduced me to Professor Subrin Simões. He looked at me and said, you want to work, you begin tomorrow. So that was the beginning <laughs> of a lifelong experience. And it was very nice. And I had the opportunity, that was a good thing, because I had the opportunity not only to join the group in pathology and uh, to, to be involved immediately in research and uh, teaching, but at the same time I had the internship in general medicine. By that time we had to accomplish this to get a diploma of medical doctor. So I could experience... Uh, to be, well, in front of the patients and treating patients, and to be completely honest, that was not an exciting experience. And mainly because it was very clear for me, I wouldn't ever be able to be a pediatrician because I do love children. That is true still nowadays. I have a huge empathy for children, but uh, I, I could not cope with the child suffering at all. I could not uh, finish my observation and uh, moving to another activity. I would keep the problem of that child for days and would not be. It, it was too, too, too demanding. That is a, a kind of activity I would not be able to do in my everyday life. So it was fantastic because it gave me the opportunity to understand that being involved in diagnostic activities does not be involved in clinics. And pathology is perfect. And I was already in research and involved in teaching. So it was uh, what my dream was. And so I managed to, to, to fulfill my expectations in a short period. That's interesting that you got to do all the things that you wanted to do in, in a field that you didn't, didn't expect, I guess. Indeed. But pathology is perfect for that. Because in pathology, that's what uh, I still do these days. I'm involved in diagnosis, so I'm, uh, I, I every day practice pathology in diagnostic activities, clinical pathological conference, uh, uh, teaching the residents, uh, so on and so forth. And uh, I'm involved in research and also in postgraduate education and undergraduate education. So. We managed to put everything together. Is the kind of learning from your practice, having this knowledge to, uh, in a very translational approach for the students and getting from research the best for the understanding of the diseases, which is, the, for me, the corner of pathology. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> now, you mentioned uh, being in Angola for part of your education a little earlier. 
And I want to talk about that for just a few minutes. I know there was kind of a, uh, I mean, I mean, you mentioned kind of a time of civil war in Angola, but can you tell me about your experience there? What was it like to live in a, in a different country? I mean, because this is from, <laughs> from Portugal all the way to, this is like sort of south, southwestern Africa. Uh, yes. that, that's that's pretty far from home. Uh, indeed. But actually, I was born in Angola. It was even better. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, my parents, my father was at the age of 20, and he decided that uh, he should search for a better life. So he just uh, went by boat, one month by boat, with my mother and few belongings. And they went to the south of Angola in a fantastic place, beautiful, where they constituted a family. And I was born there, also my brother, who is two years older. So I was born there. I spent the best years of my life in Angola. My parents, they were civil servants. They were primary uh, teachers for, for children. And so they were involved in education since ever. My father moved afterwards for the coordination of the primary teaching in Angola. And as civil servants, the Portuguese civil servants before the independence, they would spend four years in Africa and one year in Portugal. Uh, just not to interrupt the school years because summertime is different in South and North Hemisphere. So from very early age, we were always moving uh, between Africa and Portugal, and it was not only Angola. It was also Santome, a small island in the Atlantic Ocean. And in Angola, we lived in the south, and the last years were in Luanda, the capital. And the war, the civil war, were using, it was for us, because it was war in Angola, as you know, but in the bushes, not in cities. So for the last year we spent, the war was in the capital because it was the fight for power. Portugal had decided to give independence, but there was that last year in Angola of transition in which the different parties fighting for independence, uh, all of them, they were settled in Rwanda and supported by different uh, political powers, Russia, uh, United States, South Africa, you can imagine the different type of interests. So the war, it was in town, believe it or not. The university hospital was bombed. Uh, I was there that day, and my oh, parents, wow. they had been extremely tolerant until that day. That day, my father arrived home and said, my dear children, enough is enough. Next week, you go to Portugal. That's why all of a sudden, in the middle of a school year, I was in the third year, we moved from Angola to Porto, and I refused to lose that school year because it had been very demanding with war, but we managed to keep classes moving, and I was already involved in teaching of the students of the first year, and we kept all activities until the day the hospital was bombed. So I refused to accept that would be one year lost in our lives. So I came to the scientific and pedagogical department at our university and asked for those uh, disciplines uh, that had been uh, taught to the students and they had been evaluated would be considered 
as equivalent to the disciplines in at the University of Porto Curriculum in Medicine, and this was feasible. But before there, I had to sit for all the examinations of that third year because we came before the period of the final examinations. So I moved from Luanda to Porto, and I had to sit for the examinations in every discipline, which actually was not a big challenge, you know, because okay. teaching there was something, uh, a kind of a dream, because the first thing we learned the first day in anatomy is that you are going to learn what you are able to do. So each pair of students would have to dissect of a corpse during the anatomy course. So we would not study anatomy at home. We would spend hours at the Faculty of Medicine just dissecting and uh, collaborating uh, with other students. It was uh, it was fantastic. I think the best I could have ever had in, in terms of teaching and training for the first years at university. And I think that was absolutely determinant for my life, being born there, being a child there, having been a university student in this kind of ideal environment. The University of Luanda was... Uh, the Faculty of Medicine of the University of Luanda was uh, very young, so everything was new. The teachers were devoted, the students were enthusiastic, the weather was fantastic. It was different. <laughs> That's why I miss so much. Okay, okay, yeah. So it sounds like kind of looking back at that, that was a that was a good experience for you overall. Like it was something, that, uh, memory that you kind of treasure. Is that does that sound right? Okay. Okay. Now you mentioned the, the teaching aspect and I know you also said that your parents were teachers. So that it seems like that would have had an influence on you as well. And you, so you, even as a medical student, you were interested in teaching, yeah. right? Very much. Okay. Yeah. I've been involved in teaching since my third year at the, at university. Okay. And, and you're still teaching now, oh, right? Yes. Yes, now I'm full professor of pathology at the Faculty of Medicine of the University of Porto. So I'm involved in undergraduate teaching of biopathology, and it's very good, and I want to emphasize that because in our school, we have two independent disciplines in the third year, biopathology one and biopathology two, that this is not so frequent. So it means that we were able to keep the interest uh, on the field. And uh, in addition, we have joint classes with all clinical disciplines in the curriculum. So we participate in the activities, teaching activities of all other areas in the medical curriculum, except for the, the basics, of course, the clinical disciplines. We have many clinical pathological conferences, even for the students of the third year. It's very active. Now, you mentioned biopathology. How is that different from just pathology? Uh, it's different in the sense that biopathology is mainly focused on what I think pathology should give to the students, which is understanding of the diseases. So it's not to give them the tools to become the able to diagnose, that is the role for pathologists, but to give the tools for understanding diseases in terms of uh, 
uh, risk factors, pathogenesis, molecular pathology, integration of the di di different knowledges for the better understanding, which in my view is the pillar of medicine, understanding diseases. So it has been successful, I would say, because otherwise this would have not survived in the curriculum. And so we have in the first semester is devoted to inflammatory and generative disorders. And the second semester is devoted mainly to cancer models. How did you become interested in gastrointestinal pathology? Oh, that's a long story. I, I told you already that when I came to pathology, I began to work with Professor Srim Simoic. Yes. He is a super expert in thyroid. He was already by that time. And so I began doing some research, electron microscopy by that time. It was, uh, it was very stimulating and uh, in thyroid pathology. But in the meantime, you may know that gastric cancer is a major problem in Portugal. The incidence is very high. And because of this importance for, in terms of health, it was becoming to get more easily funded. So Professor Subrim, in a way, directed some of us to research in gastric cancer, which was very successful because we were building a group of people now getting also biologists and molecular biologists and geneticists joining the group. So putting together not only pathology, but all these new tools. So we worked in gastric cancer sporadic, essentially, in the better understanding of the profile of the disease in Portugal, essentially north of Portugal, where we studied large series of cases. And this was very successful because from this initiative, several PhD theses uh, emerged from this approach. And we were a group of several people, so several people can go in depth in different fields in the same large field of gastric cancer. And it was already because of my interest in gastric cancer that later I moved or dedicated to hereditary gastric cancer. And here we, I had two stories, if I can say so. The first was uh, when uh, 1998, it was published, the identification of hereditary diffuse gastric cancer in the study of uh, Maori from New Zealand. And uh, this was published by Perry Guilford. And since then, it became an interest all over the world uh, to know if uh, it was not only in New Zealand, but in other parts of the world. And it was constituted an international gastric cancer linkage consortium. I was a member of that. So I had the opportunity to study hundreds of cases of uh, gastric cancer, hereditary gastric cancer, uh, not from cases from Portugal, and we have several families, that is true, but also from all over, because the consortium was gathering the cases from everywhere. And in a way, by that time, I was the pathologist in the group, so I had the opportunity to study many cases and to report the first findings on the precursor lesions of this type of hereditary gastric cancer. This was in 2004 in Journal of Pathology, and it was really something that was maybe one of the most important contributions I can talk of. 
So we went on with interest in hereditary diffuse gastric cancer, now in other fields, identifying the spectrum of the mutations, or more correctly, the variants in the encoding gene, CDH1. And it was more recently, and now we were something like 2010, that I was challenged to study another type of familial cancer. And this other type that I will detail in a minute was identified in New Zealand, uh, not in New Zealand, but in Australia. I like very much the okay. story because the two really hereditary gastric cancers were identified in New Zealand the first and now in Australia. The second time is completely different and is what is designated of gastric adenocarcinoma and fundic gland polyposis. So it, it, the first one is uh, constituted by diffuse type of gastric cancer. This is intestinal type of gastric cancer in the setting of a fundic gland polyposis in the stomach. It was another challenge, this experience, actually. I wonder if you know, but uh, from Australia, and this was also the case from New Zealand, they cannot send uh, human samples abroad. So I could not get the paraffin blocks. And by their time already, I received dozens and dozens of digital slides. So I went to go through, and it's very fair to mention, Chinese pathologist who now is working with us, who helped me a lot. We spent hours and hours and hours studying all those cases. This is Dr. Wen, Xiaogang Wen. He still is in Portugal. Imagine, he came from China. He learned to speak Portuguese. He got the equivalence to the MD degree. He got the speciality. He's really a fantastic person. Still goes on working with us and is extremely helpful. So in a way, despite the interest in gastric cancer in general and sporadic gastric cancer, in a way I focused in the hereditary forms, hereditary diffuse and this gap syndrome. Do you happen, or is it known, I guess, why the incidence of gastric cancer is high in Portugal? Uh, it's known, and I don't know if I can say that it's suspected, but... Uh, one of the reasons uh, you may know that for sporadic acid cancer, you have to take in consideration environmental factors and also some susceptibility of the population. I'm not talking now of determinant gene mutations, germinal gene mutations, but uh, specific susceptibility conditions that increase, for instance, inflammatory response, so on and so forth relate with interleucine production. From the environment, of course, H. pylori, helicobacter pylori infection is the most uh, appealing factor because the incidence still is very high and infection begins early. And in our group, and now is self-figured, the person who is doing this, she studied in depth not only the different strains of H. pylori, but also now the microbioma. And uh, she published this in Gut, demonstrating that uh, in this area, and uh, I think this is true for other areas, the microbioma in gastric cancer is dysbiotic, is different. So it's not only H. pylori, but is the 
millions of microorganisms you have in our GI, in the lumen, that are have a different profile when there is this malignant transformation from people control group without uh, precursor lesions and normal stomachs. So we believe this is important. And of course, you cannot forget that Portuguese like very much to eat good food. And now good food becomes more tasteable when you put salt. So there is this tendency for using too much salt, which is also considered aggressive. And also processed foods, you know, there are very peculiar elements in our diet that are the the part of the Mediterranean diet that we can have in Portugal are not enough to compensate for these deviations in salt and processed food because we have fruits, we have juices, we have vegetables, uh, but this is not uh, for the moment enough to compensate. Is decreasing in a way the infection of Helicobacter pylori, but the prevalence of gastric cancer is still very high. But here you cannot forget that it's not only because uh, there is an increase in incidence because prevalence puts together what is new, but also the old cases because patients are better treated, they survive for longer, people live for longer. So what is expected all over the world in Europe is clear demonstrated in Portugal also, not only for gastric cancer, but for any other type of cancer because of the increasing age of the population, the total number of cases will increase. But of course, uh, there are major improvements in early diagnosis, in adequate treatment, but this is what the epidemiology brings together, not only in Portugal, but uh, all over in Europe at least. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So because of you're kind of being one of the leading researchers in gastric cancer and like that, it seems like that's how you got involved with uh, being an editor of the uh, the WHO tumors of the digestive yep. system. So people, people call that the blue book. Yeah. Yeah. That was a fantastic experience. Uh, again, it got me a bit in surprise when I was invited to join this initiative. This was Professor Fred Bosman. I'm sure you know him. I guess you have interviewed him already or will. Oh, in the f- yes, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> so Professor Fred Bosman, once in an international meeting in the United States, he told me, I invite you for lunch. It was my pleasure. I like him very much. He knows that. And so we had been working together for long already at the European Society of Pathology. And he told me, I will be the editor of the next edition, the fourth edition of WHO book. And I want to invite you for one of the co-editors. <laughs> and uh, he's very, he has the power to convince the others. So in a way, he told me, no, is not an acceptable answer. So in a way, because of the confidence I have on him, I accepted trembling. It was really very challenging. So I was the editor for the upper GI, and uh, there was an editor for liver, another editor for pancreas, another editor for lower GI. Fred was uh, for pancreas. It was Ralph Rubin, Professor Ralph Rubin. I know that you knew him also. 
So yes. the scientific community, <laughs> you are just picking one after the other, so you know the people already. <laughs> so it was very nice. It is not an easy task because you have to you you have to to jobs, let's like say, to take care of the chapters in which you are acting as a, a writer as a, in your scientific approach, but you have also to to be to to take care of the health of the whole upper GI. And this is not easy always because you have to, to make sure that people provide their texts in due time and the consensus meeting now and then they are not easy because you may know that for WHO, uh, the decisions, uh, if they are not uh, so clear, they should be taken in, in, in a consensus because WHO is a book to be used all over the world. It's not a WHO for North America and the other for South Africa. So we have to reach a consensus and now and then you have to, to leave behind some details that you would like to include. But for the moment, that is the consensus that is possible. So it was really exciting. It was uh, an honor. And I got involved also in the fifth edition of the WHO book, now as a standing member of the editorial committee. And uh, in that quality, I was involved in the gastric cancer sporadic and also the hereditary, the chapters on hereditary gastric cancer, hereditary diffuse and gap syndrome. And currently, and we are 2022, I am involved in the new book on genetic tumor syndromes, which is a kind of a complement of the previous one. So it is an ongoing activity, but uh, the person behind is Fred Bosman for all this activity. And I'm very grateful to him because it was very nice. Okay. So he gets <laughs> either, the, either the credit or the blame, depending on... <laughs> the outcome um how much like what what is the time commitment for uh creating a book like this i mean it seems the reason i wanted to talk about this was it seems like a giant project like a really monumental task like how do you even start and like how long did it take it is a giant project yes and for the editor-in-chief is really a giant process from mm -hmm. beginning to invite people and having the book published this is uh, two years i would say uh, not the current one, which is a short one on genetic tumor syndromes, but for the other editions. I think I can remember the last, the fifth, was published in 2019, and I was involved in 2018. And so you have to gather the other members to settle the, the structure of the chapters, to get the contributions, to have uh, meetings in uh, for the 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 editors and the authors to discuss and this takes time and you have to have things written, you have the proofs to correct, you have many things along. It is something more than one year, I think, close to two. Wow, okay. That, that is a lot of work. <laughs> All right. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Fatima Canaro. We'll be right back. LabVine invites you to their Laboratory Transformation Seasonal School to help laboratory professionals gear up for the future of healthcare. This is a three-day online event taking place August 29th through the 31st. Day one focuses on change, transformation, and culture. Day two, 
on staff optimization, and day three on implementation and change management. I'll be speaking at this event as well as a few other people who you have heard on this podcast. You can register for free for Laboratory Transformation Seasonal School by following the link in the show notes. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need. Comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, so I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program, where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Fatima Canaro on the People of Pathology podcast. I, I know I want to talk about the uh, European Society of Pathology. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you served as president of the society from yeah. 2000, 2011, 2013. But let's let's kind of back up from, to the beginning of that. Like, how did you get in, involved in the European Society of Pathology? Uh, the, the very recently, someone asked me about European Society of Pathology. And I said, I am addicted to European Society of Pathology. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I can understand that. (laughs) So it began, uh, well, a long time ago. And it began because uh, I was working with Professor Sabrina Simões directly. And he was involved at European Society of Pathology very early in his career. He has been secretary of the European Society of Pathology many years. Maybe the person who was uh, more time involved as secretary. And from there, he was member of the executive committee, of course, and he was president of the European Society. So I began to go to the European Congresses. Uh, The first one, I have a funny story to tell. The first one, I I, I hope that Professor Ivan Damianov uh, doesn't mind that I tell this story, but it was my first European Congress of Pathology. And uh, in a bus, I was sitting close to him. I had been introduced to him uh, some minutes before, and you we were talking about, I don't remember the content of the conversation, but I remember very well that when he arrived at the destination, he asked me, were you educated in a nun's college? <laughs> So I'm afraid I was behaving too, too, too correctly. I don't know, just saying correct words. I don't know. But this is a fantastic okay. story that I still remember today. But he, even is like that, he is provocative. So it was the beginning of a very, very nice and deep friendship with even Damiano. So, but uh, I got involved in this. I began to attend the congresses early and regularly. Uh, twice. Uh, by that time, it was uh, every two years. It became annually more recently. And uh, I joined the executive committee in something like 2003. So it was the first experience, administrative experience, if I can say so. I, in a way, it was Professor Fred Bosman who, in a way, invited me if I would accept to become uh, president of the European Society. It was challenging the story about WHO book, but this one that was before the WHO book was even more challenging. I thought I wouldn't be able to do that, but uh, after a good lunch and a good conversation, I finally accepted. So it began as you expect as president-elect 
and this was uh, 29 until 2011. I was president for the next two years, 2011, 2013, and past president between 2013 and 2015. After being the president, you become chair of the working groups, which is uh, a demanding, uh, as a past president, you become chair of the working groups, which is demanding because it's the responsibility of organizing uh, the scientific content for the congresses, uh, that will come afterwards. And uh, not only I was a share of the working group, that is what is expected, but was also share of the advisory board. And this gives you a large scope of doing many things, of uh, becoming involved with different people, of trying to put together different societies, of trying... Uh, uh, well, to leave something that people may remember of. So the, the, the motto of my presidency was education in pathology. And in a way, I tried to, to reinforce the role of the European society in education. And by that time, we had the uh, courses of the European School of Pathology and SCOP, for which Professor Fred Bosman had also played a very, very important role. And I was uh, with him, with Carol Gabus, Arsu, and Sari in the ESCOP course on gastrointestinal pathology. So we would go to different places in Europe, organizing courses two, three days, in a way disseminating locally for the local pathologists uh, the knowledge about, in this case, gastrointestinal pathology, but there were ESCOP courses in many different fields. And of course, the support to pathology was also with webinars in the headquarters in Brussels and trying to support residents with bursaries to attend European Congresses of Pathology. That is something that still exists. And this is very interesting because European society provides these bursaries on the basis of the presentation of an approved abstract. And so people are stimulated to participate and they do not pay registration fees, even get an extra pocket money. So it's really for helping young pathologists all over. And there was something that I like very, very, very much. And I'm sorry I'm talking again about Professor Fred Bosman, which is the so-called progress test at European level. And this is an initiative that uh, I like very much because it's a kind, it's not a kind, it's a test that now is uh, provided online, available for all residents and pathologists, whoever wants to participate, is performed annually. So people will have time, enough time to, to participate and answer to all questions. It is anonymous, the classification for the others. Only the person who was involved will get his classification, and that person will know which is the position in comparison with others in Europe. And we'll have the opportunity to compare the performance one year to next year. So in a way, it's a kind of not only learning when you, you are doing the text because you can use your time to consult the books and to get the right answers, so it gives you the opportunity to make the test as if you were in your everyday life. That's one of the things I like the most. 
because when okay. I'm doing my diagnosis, I can consult the books. I have a certain time for that, so I don't have many days for. I have a determined time, but I can consult, which makes no sense, and gives to each one the idea of the position in regard to the other uh, residents in Europe at that year of training and to compare the performance along time. I am so convinced of the benefits that in my department, every resident is uh, obliged, let me say. If it does not participate, there is a negative uh, evaluation in the final examination because I think this is really crucial. So during that period, we tried very much to reinforce the internationalization, the, the connection with other societies, clinical societies, UEG, ORTC, ESMO, so, so many with memorandums of understanding. And one thing that was also very important was the reinforcement of the relationship with the, the national societies because uh, the advisory board is one of the missions, is the representation of each European society who is that is represented by the chair or vice chair, whoever, in which the European problems are debated in an attempt to provide um, some help. And for the European societies, uh, the national societies, one type of help that was provided was the organization, of course, is supported by European Society of Pathology with people from the, the, the committees of the European Society of Pathology who would come to different countries and participate in teaching. So it, it has been really, really very nice. In a way, at, a, at an interview, once I mentioned that uh, this gave me a kind of uh, go for it, which is a kind of a masculine approach that I, I, I say that with some proud because I keep my feminine uh, characteristics and I'm, I'm very keen on. But uh, actually you can improve uh, your, what you do in management. So pathology is not exactly a kind of any, uh, of selling goods is something different, but management is something that in our societies, Latin societies, is not so much cared. So this experience was also in that respect very important for me. Now you understand why I am a kind of addicted to European society. There is a bunch of sure. activities I can tell you about more recently developed uh, many things. For instance, uh, the, the academy, the junior academy in pathology uh, that uh, tries to get uh, young people devoted mainly to science, science and research. So in a way, I think that European society is getting stronger and stronger, is more stable, the internal organization, the headquarters in Brussels. So... It is European Society for Opatologists. I like it. Yeah, that's a lot of activity. That's <laughs> interesting. So you were just talking about how you're trying to build, through the European Society of Pathology, trying to build better relationships with the, with the national societies of the, of the countries of, of Europe. And, and it seems like kind of throughout your career, you've had this kind of international uh, aspect to it. And I wonder if that, if that all, 
goes all the way back to you living in Angola and having that yeah. international experience yeah. that early. That's a very good question. Uh, and uh, to be, to tell the truth, I never went back to Angola. I don't want to go back to Angola. That would be too much because uh, so many things changed or destroyed. I want to keep my memories. But I went back to Africa many times. And this going back to Africa means uh, I've been in Mozambique. And we have a very intense collaboration with Mozambique. We go okay. regular to Mozambique. I've been there in Mozambique already in the beginning of June. You have residents uh, every year. We have residents from Mozambique. We train in pathology. We have PhD students. It has been extremely successful. It's a relationship that began many years ago, 30 years, something like that, by Professor Serene Simões. By the time there was no pathology almost in Mozambique. So the people now taking care of pathology in Mozambique were trained here in Porto and is an extremely fruitful, bi-directional relationship. We have one PhD student now with us, and they manage in Mozambique, believe it or not, in Maputo, the capital, they managed to get several people involved in PhD programs and now with a PhD degree. Not only in Portugal, but also in uh, Spain, they have a very good collaboration with Barcelona, and I, I tell this just because I think that many things can be done despite adverse conditions. And for instance, they are developing digital pathology. They are introducing molecular pathology these days by Idila technology, for instance. And uh, we collaborate in teaching already using uh, web-based programs. So it is a huge pleasure whenever we go and visit because we feel it's uh, they are growing, and they all they have a group of uh, six or seven residents already, which for Mozambique it's really great. The problem is the heterogeneity because we can help there in Mozambique, but we cannot reach the other cities in the country, and the other cities they are in a very poor condition. So how do they solve this? They solve this because they keep the umbilical cord with Maputo, the capital. And it's very nice because they manage, and I say this with proud because we have been so much involved, they manage to get international collaborations. For instance, this week I attended one of the courses they have regularly with U.S., in which they discuss every month either specific cases or reviewed thematic areas. This uh, this week was pressed. The other connection they have is with the CDC in Atlanta for infectious disease. Imagine how important this is for them. They send scan slides. And for instance, they introduced uh, core biopsy-based autopsies because the resources are not that much. So they were trained in a program with Barcelona. So they get core biopsies, many from many organs. So they do not spend so much time and it's much easier. I'm telling this as a kind of stimulus that even in adverse conditions, uh, there is uh, something, not to say many things that can be developed and done 
in favor of pathology. It was a huge pleasure when I visited early June because I was invited uh, to to see the Minister of Health, Director of the Faculty of Medicine, Director of the Hospital, and it was really very nice to see how much they respect pathology in that hospital. And uh, that means that they were successful in transmitting this concept that pathology gives the understanding of diseases and is a basis for clinical activity. Very rewarding, believe me. Maybe I am a bit enthusiastic because I was born in Africa. So, <laughs> and my Still, dream, yeah. now, <laughs> my dream but, now is to bring my grandchildren to Africa. <laughs> okay. I'll do that. That does sound very rewarding. Is this something that you would encourage uh, like younger pathologists or pathologists, you know, right after graduating from residency? Like, would you encourage them to get involved in international efforts like this? Uh, yes, we tried. It's not easy, but we tried. But, you know, Europeans are not so open to this challenging experience. Uh, I think that it will still be possible, but so far it was not. Uh, just giving the opportunity, for instance, to spend one month there just to see how things are developed and uh, to be aware of these international connections, so on and so forth. You know, the Europeans, I don't know, maybe as the North Americans, they they are more they like... Uh, a quiet life without. <laughs> That's sure, why I'm yeah. afraid that my African spirit influences also my enthusiasm, because uh, we have not been able to to convince anyone to spend there some time and to learn a lot from them. And we have many collaborations oh. with Brazil also, to be completely mm. honest. So internationalization, okay. we think, is uh, very rewarding and the way to go. Yeah, I, I think I agree. It's very important. It's, you know, something else I wanted to ask you about, you coordinated the formation of a national tumor bank network in mm -hmm. Portugal. Mm -hmm. Why was this important to you to do this? Uh, I think it is very important. This was some years ago. It was a big effort to get funding. And uh, it deserves to be mentioned that part of the funding came from uh, pharmaceutical companies, from Novartis specifically, but afterwards, it was impossible to get their help. So the government was not supporting very much. We hope that it will change. So I think it's crucial to get... Uh, it's not so important that it was in the past, I, I, I would say, because we have to keep the samples in the tumor bank to, uh, to begin with. Any department of pathology is a tumor bank because you keep the samples. And the samples are yeah. embedded. So when we speak about tumor bank, we are talking about frozen tumor bank. That is a huge effort, economical, because of the freezers, because of the staff, is really uh, really demanding to, to, to put this in place. And it has been possible here at the hospital with the help, but it's not a development it should have had. It's getting more visibility now because there is a network of tumor banks in hospitals that I coordinate, but there was now linked to a national network of all sorts of tissue banks, not tumor only, but tissue banks. So it will put together different types of tissues from inflammatory diseases, uh, for from samples of cartilages, uh, you name it, even from uh, 
from more practical aspects of basic science, so on and so forth. But my my job is related to, to tumor bank, related to, to cancer and samples. What is the biggest challenge that we are improving now with this national network is to have a, a solid informatic system that where you can put all information, but at the same time to have that information protected from users, only those who get the permissions for specific fields should be allowed. One of my challenges for the moment, and this was not developed, but I hope to, and I want to touch briefly another part of pathology that is developing, which okay. is uh, transformation uh, of pathology in digital pathology. So my dream is to have for each sample a digital image of that tumor. Because to ask the tumor bank, give me 20 samples of gastric cancer is basic and not acceptable. The question is how many samples you have, which types you have. May I check the quality of the samples you have? And in that sense, we would like to have for each sample the digital image. And this is very relevant now in the, in the world that is moving also to the application of artificial intelligence. I don't know how much you have been interested in the field, but more and more the application of artificial intelligence to pathology is getting stronger and stronger. Yes. I, I, I don't, I don't feel very much like having artificial intelligence to substitute my microscope, but at the end of the day, that is one of the goals. But I think it's mandatory to develop artificial intelligence in a more practical approach for algorithms of analysis with the, the demands from the different protocols and clinicians. You have to count the eosinophils, the lymphocytes, uh, not to talk about BDL1, which is a kind of a nightmare, can destroy the few hours that you would have for resting. It is becoming a, a crazy world. So I think we really need algorithms of analysis by computational pathology, wherever artificial intelligence will be behind. But we need that these days to be developed. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And now it seems like we, we talked a little bit about kind of molecular pathology uh, earlier, and it seems like that field as well, yeah. along with our artificial intelligence, Absolutely. is rapid. It's Yeah, it's rapidly expanding. And so it seems like the need for tumor banked tissue would, would be even greater. So what you're doing here, creating this network is kind of almost, uh, you know, ahead of its time, really kind of foreseeing yeah. the future. Yeah. Was that, did Absolutely. that have something to do with it? Absolutely. So then the, the last thing I wanted to talk about now here in the U S there's a shortage of pathologists mm. and, and particularly forensic pathologists. Now I'm curious if it's the same uh, in Portugal. It is the same in Portugal. It's a huge problem, uh, but there are two phases of the problem. Uh, in general, there is a shortage of pathologists, and afterwards we have to dissect where are they. Now there is a very strong appeal to recruit young pathologists for private labs. And it was not that strong in the past, but is now really a challenge at the moment. So the private labs are offering good prices, uh, for people to work there. 
some people try to to get together at a position at the hospital and to have this extra in the private uh, lab. Here in the institution where we work, we have shortage, but we can breathe and you can have a normal life. But because we still can recruit, have been able to recruit among the the juniors, people very well trained abroad and with the, the and wishing to stay here for development from lepropathology for all these challenges and also to be involved in research. But the several hospitals they are really in very difficult situation. What happens when they are in difficult situation? It happens that they are not able to cope with the demand from the clinicians. So they send part of the samples abroad for private uh, pathology. And this is not the best you can wish for your hospital, for your patients. At the end of the day, it disturbs completely the clinical pathological conferences, which every week we have seven, eight clinical pathological conferences with the different groups, breast, stomach, pancreas, liver, so on and so forth. And if the cases are not studied there, how can you get an answer for those. We developed currently the possibility of having digital images, not only of the macro specimen, but also of these logical slides available for the tumor boards. So in case of any doubt, you can review with the surgeons, the clinicians, the surgical specimen and to elucidate something in doubt. And you can review these logical features, the biomarkers expressed by immunosuchem, so on and so forth. That is currently our investment, is to make all this information available for these tumor bonds, which is a, a great achievement. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> as far as like recruiting medical students into pathology, what do you think needs to be done to make that, to make that better, to recruit more uh, future pathologists? You know why there is in Portugal, we notice a, a great difference from the years I was recruited and currently. By that time, uh, there was a group of people more or less of the same age, difference two, three years. The dream was to go to pathology, to understand the diseases and to have an opportunity to be involved in teaching and research. Uh, nowadays, with the low salaries, that we receive, and I don't want to mention my salary, <laughs> but the whole salary okay. you get, if you do not have something extra, at the end of the day, you need money to pay the bills at home for children, so on, so forth, so on. So the, the offer from the private initiatives is really competitive and is getting very difficult to, to attract with the same... Uh, power as it was before. I don't know. I don't know what we can do. I don't know. Of course, we do what we can, stimulating the students. We organize many clinical pathological conferences with them. We participate in their congresses. In their congresses, there is always pathology represented. We always participate in the juries of evaluation. And we even organized the transformation, the digital transformation of pathology for this year Congress organized by students. It's a fantastic meeting. The name is Yes Meeting and recruits students from all over in Europe and not only. 
So we try to bring visibility and we try to attract them because in our school at the last year, the students, they have to do some research. It can be practical or review, study, whatever, but it has to be presented to get the classification in the format of a published paper. If it is only the format, the classification would be something like three-fourths of the maximum. If the paper, when they present for the final examination, is published already, they get 20 out of 20. So in a way, in our school, we try to to expose them. And you can ask, okay, but there are many disciplines, many topics. Yes, there are. But we try to offer from pathology topics to attract them. And that is a way. And uh, to be completely honest, uh, our effort has been uh, a big effort with brilliant students. It was my dream to get at least uh, one-fourth of those. But, you know, gastroenterology, dermatology, not pediatrics, ophthalmology, these are very attractive activities in in private uh, practice. So at the end of the day, the best students to get these specialities. So we still go on getting every year two new residents. Um, okay. Now and then they are very good, but now and then you have to work a lot with them. <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, Dr. Kanaira, this has been a very interesting conversation. I appreciate kind of looking back throughout your career and, and just learning more about you. So Dr. Fatima Kanairo, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Big hug to my friends. <laughs> Great big thanks to Dr. Fatima Kanairo. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. Because there's no medical discipline like pathology that rests entirely on another discipline, which is the labs. If the labs aren't functioning properly and you cannot trust the laboratory result, it leads to what the World Bank called the vicious cycle. And they've got a whole lot of steps in it. And physicians have to make a presumptive diagnosis. Well, let's just, we don't know really if these labs are right. It doesn't look right. It doesn't fit it. Let's just treat it as though it were that. Now, that is incredibly wasteful especially in a low-resource setting. When you make a presumptive diagnosis and you've got the diagnosis wrong, you treat it. And I can tell you many cases where that happened. The case of a minister in an African country, the wife of a minister who had sort of uterine masses, and they thought, oh, this is cancer. And they couldn't diagnose, and they didn't diagnose, and they started treating her with you know, expensive uh, cancer regimens, and eventually she specimen, nothing, no response was sent to South Africa and was a fibroid. You can hear more from Dr. Quentin Eichbaum in episode 95. So this episode was another great example of the international aspect of pathology. I mean, that's certainly true in Dr. Canaro's upbringing and education in Angola, but it's also true in the work that she's done with the WHO Blue Book and also her work with the European Society of Pathology. I mean, she mentioned her projects in trying to work with the individual country uh, pathology societies in order to make them all stronger. I also really enjoyed her story about creating a national biobank network in Portugal and her ideas of a sort of virtual biobank, which really combines digital pathology and biobanking. And as molecular pathology becomes more and more utilized, I think the notion of a digital biobank will become 
even more important. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being, and you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.